You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Review Podcast. Before we start today's show, how does the offer of free beer sound to you? As a loyal listener of the show, we'd like to reward you with just that, free beer. Thanks to our friends at Beer52, the UK's most popular craft beer discovery club, you have the opportunity to sip eight free exclusive craft beers from all around the world. All you need to do is go to beer52.com forward slash Witten and just cover the £4.95 postage fee and the beers will be delivered to your doorstep. As well as the beers, you get a magazine and a snack as part of the deal. They send subscribers a crate of beer every month, and there's a different theme for the beers each month. You're able to pause or cancel your subscription at any time. Anyway, on with the show. Today is an Almanac special to coincide with the release of the 2020 Wizard and Cricketers Almanac. With me to talk about it is the editor of the Wizard Almanac, Florence Booth, and the magazine editor of the Wizard and Cricket Monthly magazine, Joe Harmon. Thanks for joining me both. Uh, First, Joe. Joe, how are you doing? Um, all right. I, I feel like not much has changed since we last spoke, but that was two weeks ago, mm. wasn't it? Um, still yet to unpack the skipping rope. That's still waiting for a, for a really quiet time, I think. We're doing quite a lot of running, quite a lot of writing. Um, see, strange times, but it, I know, it, it, it could be worse from my own personal perspective. Um, and Lawrence, how have you found the great lockdown so far? Uh, interesting. Uh, we've got a little toddler who's um who's she's not quite climbing up the walls but but not far off it um so i was just saying how we uh, we kind of got used to the new normal it's it's going to be weird if and when she goes back to nursery so we're all clinging on in there yeah um so first off joe i was wondering if you have any standout memories of wiz and almanac as a child did you collect them did you read them every night before we went to bed oh my god you put me on the spot here haven't you yes i always got bought one for christmas um when I was way too young to really know what it meant or be able to read it. Um, so it was a kind of collector's item before it was something I read. And it was probably only when I was about 15, 16, I actually started opening them because, sorry, no offence here, Lawrence, but as a young kid, they didn't look like the most appealing things to kind of flick through at, at the time. Um, obviously now I'm a, a devoted reader. Uh, I've enjoyed reading um, good chunks of it this morning, actually, uh, which I guess will be coming on to as a child personally i actually i actually really loved them um i don't know why but we had one in the house that had jab and me and dad's final career numbers on it so for some reason i had the number 8832 etched in my mind as a number of test runs that he scored 
of the course of his career. And at one point was my, um, it's fine to say this now, but it was my pin code once, uh, 8832, <laughs> which is like the most memorable number etched in my head. But yeah, I used to, I used to read them semi-religiously uh, growing up. Laura, it's kind of, kind of related to uh, self-isolation and all that. I saw that the 2020 Almanac was printed and bound in Italy, which has obviously been under lockdown for a lot longer than we have in the UK. Did that affect the production of this year's Almanac at all? No, it affected our blood pressure. Um, I mean, the, the last few Wisdoms have been printed in Italy. Um, th this is printed in, uh, in North, North Italy, as it happens, uh, but not one of the specific areas that, was, that went into lockdown earlier than other parts of the country. If you remember, I think they had 16 million people went under lockdown at one point, but this wasn't in that area. The factory, the, the, the printers kept going, and there were apparently a couple of roads out of Italy for, for goods to come and go. So, I mean, at one point we thought, we're not going to have a wisdom on time this year. Um, so it was a miracle, really, that it all landed in time in the UK. And um, I don't know what hats off in Italian is, but I, I'd like to say it right now. To people who've never bought an Almanac before, what actually is it? Well, in essence, it's a, a record of the previous calendar year's cricket all around the world, but majoring on, on English cricket. Um, it has some statistics in the back, which it's probably been most famous for down the years, the wisdom records. But increasingly over the last few years, as the internet has taken over cricket statistics, we have to uh, draw more attention than we have done previously to the, the words in wisdom. And there are about 250 pages of what we think of as, as, as good writing at the front of the book. So it's a book to read as well as to browse through and um, to record things and it, it's it's serious and it's whimsical uh, and it and it tries to look at cricket from all kinds of angles. One of the things that the Almanac is most well known for is the five wisdom cricketers of the year that are named in the Almanac. So do you want to name who the five are this year? Yeah, uh, it's Joffre Archer, uh, Pat Cummins, um, Manus Labashain, Elise Perry and Simon Harmer. So they're the five we've gone for. It was the first time ever you, am I right in saying that you wrote a bit of an explainer? Yeah. I'm like itself. So do you want to talk about why you decided to do that this year? Yeah, this year was, was difficult. Um, there were lots of people who could have made it. I, I expect to get even more flack than usual when the five are announced on social media. Um, uh, partly because lots of people had, had a good case. You know, someone like Mitchell Stark would have had a good case or Jack Leach or Josh Hazelwood or Jason Roy. Um, you know, there, there, there's no right or wrong answer about any of these things. But I think the five we've ended up with are, are strong. Um, there could have been five other strong ones too. So, so I felt like it was worth just explaining how we do it. And it's not a personal insult if you're not chosen. Um, and, and, and it was probably the toughest year of the, of the nine I've edited so far. Joe, what are your initial thoughts about the five? Um, well, initially, I was outraged that Kane Williamson wasn't included uh, and then remembered that he had won it previously. Um, can't, can't blame you for that one. Um, yeah, I suppose I was actually thinking about it a few months ago. I was thinking what a difficult task you would have this year. I just remember the year previous, they didn't feel like there were too many arguments really about, about the five. Um, it might have felt a bit different on social media to Lawrence, but that, it didn't seem like you could argue the case against any of the five too easily. And the same, you can't argue against them this year, but there are so many other contenders. I mean, Dom Sibley was another one you didn't mention there, but in any other year, um, he would have to be right in amongst it because he was just stood so far out from the crowd in terms of runs scored in a difficult summer um, in the county championship. And another thing, I just wanted to get your thoughts on this, Lawrence, because 
you don't necessarily say this thing to explain a bit. It looks like the selections still feel like they lean more towards test cricket, long format cricket, in the sense that no Stark, for instance, um, Labashane is in there over Robert Sharma or Jason Roy. Is that a conscious decision? Does test cricket still come first for, for the Wisden editorial team? Or is it a kind of semi-conscious thing when you're deciding these, these candidates? I, I think it would be subconscious if it did exist. Um, I think you're looking at the overall balance of the summer and what impact was made. And that, of course, that is open to interpretation. But let's take Rohit Sharma, for example, who you know, broke, the, broke the record 500s in the World Cup and any other year would have walked in. But because the, high, the benchmark was so high this year, we looked at in the big, India's big game in the World Cup, the semi-final against New Zealand, he was out for one. And now that sounds like a really harsh reason not to include him, but he wasn't the only opener who flourished in the World Cup. You know, a lot of openers did very well. He, he did a bit better than the others, but if you're looking at a, an absolute standout from the year, we decided that Sharma didn't quite tick the box. Um, now you might say, well, why, did, why does Labashane beat him, for example? Um, Labashane felt like a really good story. He, was a, he began his ashes as a concussion substitute for the best batsman in the world and somehow ended up strengthening Australia, despite the absence of, of Steve Smith for, for one and a half test matches, um, and, and then went on to, to an Australian summer to, to beat all Australian summers. So that obviously doesn't, um, that's not one of the criteria for the Wisdom Award, but it kind of, it, I suppose it backed up the decision in a way. And, and of course, he scored a thousand runs for Glamorgan in advance. So, you know, we're taking county cricket into it too. Um, Look, you may be right. Maybe there is some kind of subconscious draw towards the Red Bull game. Uh, Mitchell Stark, could we have picked him after he played one Ashes test and didn't play for a team that, won, that got knocked out or did play for a team that got knocked out of the World Cup semi-finals? That would have been an interesting choice. I think Jason Roy, similarly. I mean, he turned around England's World Cup, then averaged nine as an open in the Ashes. I think people would rightly have questioned that if he'd been made a, a Cricket of the Year. David Warner, great World Cup flopped in the ashes so who knows maybe the ashes had happened first and then the world cup second we might have looked at it differently i don't know but that that was you know those are some of the considerations we had you could say even with stark i mean the way he got taken apart in that world cup semi-final uh, was the kind of enduring memory of that world cup from as well despite right, exactly. early on in the same way that roy as you say turned around that world cup for England in many ways but by the end of the summer looked like a kind of broken cricketer by, by first experience of Test cricket. Yeah, so I, I think we tried to go with five who you couldn't really pick in. There were no flaws in any of them, if yeah. you like. Whereas I think the other guys who just missed out narrowly all had some black mark against them. As difficult as the decision, uh, overall decision to pick just five in what was such a, an amazing English summer, some of the decisions must have been quite easy for you. Joffre Archer must have been one of the easiest decisions you've ever had to make. Yeah, Archer was a gimme. I mean, I think anyone guessing the five in advance would, would have gone for him. Um, and then it got interesting after that. Uh, I mean, Cummins, I, I think a lot of people would have gone for Cummins as well. He was the, the best bowler in the Ashes, I thought, overall. He didn't take a fiver, but still took 29 wickets. And he was the only one of Australia's fast bowlers who played in all five tests. That was high, how highly they rated him. They needed him on the park each time. Uh, he had a pretty good World Cup as well, actually. I haven't even mentioned that. Um, and then the others, sort of up for grabs. I've uh, talked about Labashane. Um, we've always taken county cricket seriously with a five, and in recent years we've taken women's cricket seriously. And I, I thought it was the wrong time to stop that, even though it was a summer dominated by the World Cup and the men's ashes. 
And if we were going to continue with that, then Simon Harmer was, I mean, I, I hear what you say about Sibley, Joe, but Harmer was the guy who bowled Essex to a title and, and indeed a, a, a double, which was unique. T20 was captain, T20 hit the winning runs, seven wickets on finals day. Uh, and Elise Perry was, you know, we weren't going to pick her after last year. We were never going to pick Elise Perry. I mean, she is the probably the greatest all-round female cricketer that's ever lived and, and dominated the Ashes last summer. So, you know, some people say, oh, it's, it's a quirky English book and they've gone with Simon Harmer ahead of Rohit Sharma. And the answer is guilty. Yeah, I think in terms of the, the, count, the county pick there, as I say, Sibley made a compelling play, case. But if, if you were going to go with one, it, it had to be Harmer, really. I mean... He's the most important player to any county in, in county cricket. Uh, and then to go and captain them to the T20 Blast as well. And also, it, it's not just Harmer, is it? He's representative of the Essex success story. Uh, what can you do? I mean, actually, Har- Harmer could have won it two years ago and we went with Jamie Porter when Essex won their title in 2017. Mm-hmm. So Harmer was unlucky then. So I think it was sort of only right that he got, he got his dues this time. Do you take those small things into consideration? Do you take into the fact that somebody very nearly won it before or that them being named one of the one of the five represents a wider success story that goes further than just the individual player success? Yeah, it all comes into the mix. I, I, look, there isn't a scientific way of doing it. I mean, I, I probably, sometimes I might pick them and in my own mind justify it after the event. You know, what I've just said there about Harmer, actually, it was completely irrelevant that he'd done well in 2017. It was just interesting to me that I, I do remember thinking, is it Porter or is it Harmer in 2017? So perhaps it felt like a nice thing to be able to do to give it to him this time, though he did also, it also happened that he actually deserved it. You know, he was, he was the man. So yeah, it's, look, it's, a, it, there, it's whimsical at heart, the choice. It's effectively the choice of one person, though I talk to other people, but the, you know, the buck stops with me in the end and I won't get it right, but then I'm not seeking to get it right because there is no right answer. So I was just going to ask actually, any all online HB directed sold at you? Picking to the five? No, wisdom. The, the, the brand gets a bit of stick. You know, I'm happy to push the push any complaints towards the brand. Um, but no, generally I'm the one sort of. I, I, it's not been too bad in recent years. I think this year might be interesting because I mean, Rohit Sharma is a good example for obvious reasons that, that may get some interest in another country. A slightly easy decision. Stokes was named the leading cricketer in the world. In the editor's notes, you're full of praise for him. You write that of the three modern all-rounders, well, the English modern all-rounders, both in bids off of Stokes. Stokes can be the greatest. Can you think of any other examples of cricketers who've had such a, an extraordinary massive impact on one English summer before? Well, I mean, both M81 is the obvious one. Um, and Flintoff, perhaps to a slightly lesser degree in 2005. Um, English cricket seems to deal with these larger-than-life all-rounders. You know, look at Australian cricket. It's never really had it in the same degree. They try to make Shane Watson a kind of larger-than-life all-rounder and he kept getting hit on his front pad, so it never really worked. But for some reason, English cricket does it, and they, once in a career, probably, they have a summer that everyone still associates with them. And I think 2019 will be Stokes' year, just as 81 was was Botham's. Um, I was interesting, I was looking at their their stats, and I write about this a bit in the notes, but um, Stokes turns 29 this year, and after their 29th birthday, their batting averages were mid to late 20s and their bowling averages were late 30s, 40. And I don't think that's going to happen with Stokes. I mean, it may happen right at the end of his career. But I think for the next few years, he'll be at his peak. And I think we'll see, we'll see the best of him. And that, that's almost the most exciting thing about him. I think he'll, he'll, he'll get better and better. And indeed, he won the Cape Town Test at the start of the year after the award had been given, which somehow confirmed, you know, that, that this guy is, is still going places. Um, yeah, and your question, Yaz, in terms of um, impact of an English cricketer in the summer... 
Stokes had perhaps not quite unique, but almost unique opportunity in that there was a World Cup and an Ashes in the same summer. It's not often you get that chance. And to grab both of them in the way that he did in such a short space of time is going to take some beating ever, really. I mean, because it wasn't just how brilliant he was, it was the opportunity laid out for him in the first place. Yeah, it was a, it was a really great line, Lawrence, uh, where you said that normally a Lord's Ashes 100 is a career highlight, but for Stokes in 2019, that was a minor mark on what was an otherwise pretty ridiculous summer. Moving on to the editor's notes more generally, what, what, what's the purpose of them and what are you trying to cover within those or so pages because you cover quite a lot and you, you you pack a lot into a very short space well again it's a it's, it's fundamentally a subjective um exercise a bit like the five so it's the editor's choice about what he or she hopefully it'll be a she one day thinks was were the things that were worth commenting on from the previous year now you hope that something leaps out at you uh, and it obviously did this year with the the, the world cup for that moment when england and won the World Cup and then suddenly you're left with the Headingley Test and then you, you write about that bit more and suddenly there doesn't seem that much space left so it was almost spoilt for choice this year I mean often the Wisdom Editor's Notes can strike a, a critical note um, the administrators get it in the neck for whatever reason At last year's Wisdom we led on the 100 which you know, may not happen now this season after all um, this year was a celebration and, it, and it's nice to do it to be a bit different this year we, we had to celebrate um, the summer of Stokes, the summer of the World Cup. We've got Joss Butler on the cover, the moment England won the World Cup. That amazing Ashes series. We may never have another summer like it, and especially with the summer that's coming up. Um, perhaps the celebrations can last a bit longer now. You, you still give your own opinion on some things. So, for example, on the free-to-air debate, you wrote that when the UK next hosts the World Cup, the government must insist that England's games can be watched by the man and woman on the street, not just those who can afford the subscription. It's a forlorn hope. Are you, are you careful about what you give opinions on? No, I, I'll give opinions on what I feel strongly about. Um, there will be probably some, if you read back, if anyone could be bothered to read back my old notes, there's probably some themes that keep cropping up. I mean, the free-to-air debate is, a, is one, is a, is a drum I keep banging and I wasn't going to bang it. You know, the, the, the great viewing figures we got when Sky shared the coverage of the final Channel 4, then I wasn't going to do it any year, really. It did seem like... English cricket became the property of the people again on that that day in a way that we hadn't really felt since 2005. And I know this this argument drives Sky Berserk and I'll probably get some angry messages um, from people about it. But I do feel strongly that, you know, if you make a sport less visible, hey presto, you're going to get fewer people watching it. And I accept all the arguments about the way viewing, viewing habits have changed and so on. But it did feel like a, a moment for the whole nation and cricket hadn't had that for a long time. So I was both celebrating that and lamenting the fact that 10 days later, they're behind a paywall again, playing Ireland in the Lord's Test. I, pick, I picked out one of your quotes from that section where you, you wrote, social media clips, likes and memes come and go, but it is live sporting drama, freely available, that makes an impact instant and lasting. I thought that really summed up because I was just thinking the way that final unfolded, clips would never have done that justice you'd have never particularly for casual cricket fans or non-cricket fans you'd have never been able to explain to them why it was so dramatic that all these things in turn happened that could only really have worked because you you're sitting on the sofa and suddenly it all starts to unfold in front of you the Stokes things heading was a bit different you could just watch you could have just watched that and admired what a brilliant uh, cricketer he was and what an amazing moment it was the World Cup final in its different chapters almost over the course of that few hours couldn't have been explained in memes or likes or clips. It had to be live viewing. And 
really emphasises how important it is that we get more cricket on, on live free to air. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I mean, also as a shared experience, wasn't it? That you probably knew that your next door neighbour was watching it at the same time and that you could probably go out your front door at the end of the game and say, wow, wasn't that amazing? Now, that, that's what happens with a shared national event. And I think that the powers that be have always downplayed that because it suits them. Uh, it suits them too. I mean, the flip side of that argument is that Sky provide an enormous amount of money for English cricket. What's a, what's like a, is there a, what's a practical middle ground that you would advocate for going forward? Yeah, I mean, you know, Sky's coverage has been outstanding. They've, they've taken it forward. My criticism has never been of that. And I also accept the point you've just made, that the, the, the money they brought into the game has been fundamental. I mean, where would we be now with a, a season that, you know, that serious financial issues looming, we'd have been in even deeper trouble without that Sky money. That is not in question. That's why I said in the notes that I, I try to have some kind of compromise where England games at future global events in England are made available to the public. Not, not the whole thing, I accept that. And what Sky did to make the final available was, was a brave decision. Um, you know, I, I sort of tip my hat to them for that. But it also, it would be a good thing for them, I think, for more people to be talking about cricket because they, more people might buy their product as well and they'd feel like they were doing a, a, pub, a public service um, more than they already are. So I looked, it's not an anti-Sky thing. It's a sort of, I suppose, a wider philosophical point about why sport exists and who should be able to access it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, more, one of my standout memories from the summer was that cricket has always been something, with well, the exception to the Isle of Ashes, that I always remember is something that is for... Uh, people who have this reasonably niche interest but actually what stood out about the World Cup final in particular was people I never knew had any sort of interest in it who, who I don't think were interested in cricket at all suddenly came out the woodwork and were like no this is amazing and kind of like like um, part of why I love uh, in rugby the Brit- British and Irish Lions tours and in football uh, major championships is you get to share your interest in something with more people because everyone's supporting the same side and with cricket it wasn't that it was just people didn't really know it was happening basically and that was that was yeah. a really nice amazing thing part part of the summer um there are some really amazing pieces in the almanac focusing on the world cup itself so the memories of a super over does that is that or did all 11 players who featured in the final contribute to that yeah they did um and then owen morgan's piece on how the world cup winning squad was was almost a celebration of the Britain's multi- multicultural identity. Uh, I believe you conducted that interview with Morgan. What was that conversation like? Well, as it came across on the page, really very open, frank, insightful. Um, I came away with angles that hadn't occurred to me before. He spoke well, for example, on how his uh, strict Catholic background, with its emphasis on family and hierarchy helped him have a greater understanding of the, of the two Muslims in his team, um, Moeen Ali and, uh, and Adil Rashid, and how they might interact with each other, uh, sort of drawing parallels between the two religions. Um, also, as a, a so-called outsider himself, a Dubliner, how he, uh, his experience of being so-called integrated into the England team and the, the insight that gave him into the other guys who'd come in, and, and not essentially celebrating... England's diversity. I think for, for a long time we've been slightly embarrassed in this country about the multicultural aspect of the cricket team. Somehow as if we've cheated by handpicking players from other parts of the world. You know, some of our Australian friends tease us about that. Um, and we say, well, no, actually it's a sign that we're, we're open-minded and multicultural people want to come here and so on. But Morgan has, 
has celebrated that and says it's, it's, it, it made us stronger. You know, the, the question of Joffre Archer integrating him at the start of the season, people worried about that. Uh, Morgan said, well, he turned up at the training camp ahead of the World Cup in, in Cardiff or ahead of the, I think it was the Pakistan One Day Series, and talked to people and they said, no, he's enhanced the thing, the, the, the feel about the place. The bowlers are all, you know, they're all striving for it now. There's no, no sort of, no bowler fell away from the pack. He thought that maybe one of them would, quite obviously. And he said that decision was incredibly hard. So it was a celebration of, of, of the diversity in his team and the strength that England drew from it. He says to you um, at one stage, until the 2016 EU referendum, most of us probably thought life in the UK was pretty harmonious. Since then, it's become completely divided. Uh, now, I know from personal experience of speaking to cricketers, it's not often you'll get a current cricketer who's willing to talk politics. Uh, did Morgan take much convincing to take on a piece like this and to address issues like race, diversity, religion? Because he's putting his head above the parapet in a sense. There will be a lot of people um, who don't agree with him or don't think a sportsman should be talking about these kind of things. Yeah, yeah, fair point. No, he didn't take any persuading at all. I mean, I, put, I was on tour in New Zealand um, uh, during the, it was during the, the T20 series where he was out there, obviously, as captain. And I put the request to, to Danny Rubin, the media manager, down in, I think we're in Napier, day before the game we had a good chat um and he was absolutely good as gold I mean he didn't need any prompting if anything we could have spoken for another two hours on it um he he was obviously quite engaged in the the whole concept and it means a lot to him personally he's he's had to deal with this stuff himself not singing the national anthem that that kind of business the stuff that perhaps is the the kind of I suppose the English the white English mainstream of cricket journalism would might pick him up on and think nothing of it, but it leaves impacts on, on other people. And he, he spoke really well about it. Well, there are, as you said, there are a few pieces um, up front, which I thought were fantastic. The Morgan interview uh, is brilliant. The um, piece of Bob Willis as well by Paul Allett uh, is fantastic and very funny and also quite sad, obviously, given that he passed away last year. Um, I wanted to come back to the memories of a Super Over piece as well, because, I mean, I'm, I never get tired of looking over that over that match really but there was just one bit that struck me where Joffre Archer says even when I was hit for six I was not worried which in a way I struggle to believe but having spoken to him and, and seen the way he operates I, I kind of I kind of do believe him but then what surprised me more is that the faith in Archer from his teammates as well and perhaps there's some revisionism here but you've got Plunkett and Butler both insist they weren't worried they thought Archer had it control under control which is an extraordinary amount of faith to have in someone who a lot of them wouldn't have met a couple of months previously. Um, and just shows what an extraordinary and incredibly talented cricketer he is that within that short space of time, a whole team have come to completely believe and trust that he will deliver in a Super Over or World Cup final. Yeah, it, it, you're right. It's absolutely extraordinary. It, it came from not playing for England to within about two months of playing for England to bowling the most important over in the history of English cricket, arguably. And everyone thinking, I mean, everyone in that ground that day thought that when Nisham hit that six, it was over. They needed seven off four. Heads had dropped. I mean, the amount of people, the amount of England players in that piece who referenced the, the Carlos Brathwaite, Ben Stokes in 2016 was quite revealing because they all thought, here we go again. We've, we, we, we thought we had it and, and it's slipping through our fingers. Archer, I mean, he even had the presence of mind not to try to run Nisham out from the fifth ball, which could have gone for an overthrow and would, that would have been game over as well. So his presence of mind throughout the whole thing. But, and interestingly, I talked to Morgan about that. And he, he was saying that, I was saying, what did you say to him to kind of keep, he said, you're just checking that he's not talking gibberish and he's got a clear plan. 
and you look into his eyes and if, if you're happy that he, he he understands what his plan is then then it's fine you don't really need to do anything and the fact that Arch was such a cool customer probably made Morgan's job a lot easier um but no you're right the faith they all had in him was we, we, you know that that kind of cricketer comes along once in a generation it's, it's why the, the criticism of him when he dared not to bowl 95 miles an hour at Old Trafford on the first morning just seemed like such short memory syndrome really I mean this kid had had performed wonders for England in a short space of time. Um, actually, just on just on that piece, just before I forget, the one bit I like is when Johnny Bairstow says that um, they wondered why Mark Wood went out in all his gear for the book. He didn't have to face a ball. All he had to do was run two as quickly as he could. And he went out weighed down with helmets and thigh pads. And they're like, why on earth are you doing that? Um, so probably, that probably cost England victory in the, in the 50 overs. But um, no, it was, it was, they all spoke very openly and some good memories coming back to there are a lot of small details, though, that I, I hadn't remembered or maybe didn't know. So I didn't know that Josh, but, uh, sorry, Jason Roy was supposed to bat in the super, super over. And I didn't know that uh, Morgan, at the last minute, decided that he would be the, the next man in should England lose a wicket because he thought it would be easier for a left-hander. So uh, as, as calm as Archer was on the surface in the super over itself, it didn't seem that England were that calm in the dressing room. No, I think there were some moments of panic. Uh, Morgan said that was the, the only moment where it threatened to get out of hand. Um, he seemed to keep cool otherwise. Yeah, I mean, he was, you know, scientifically working out that bolt bowling Yorkers to a right-hander, hitting them up the hill would have been harder than a left-hander sort of thing. Um, so, you know, incredibly uh, analytical in a moment where most of us would be just sort of gibbering wrecks. And so England had the captain they needed in that moment. I thought it was interesting... Mark Wood saying that Joss Butler was between the, the uh, end of England's innings and the Super Over. Joss Butler kind of shouting expletives at himself and, and kind of punching the ground. I think. Yeah. Uh, Wood, Wood says himself, "You just don't expect someone like Butler to to behave like that," and just shows the the level of tension that it, it got to. A bit I really liked as well was that um, I think it was just before the Super Over where Rashid says that him and Moen Ali had decided that. If England won, they were going to run to each other and hug if England won. They'd, they'd prepared their celebration in advance of the Super Over yeah. and had all decided they were going to hug each other, which I know yeah. was a, yeah. I love a little detail. So you're confident then, Rash? Were you? <laughs> yeah. That could have backfired. It was also the moment when they walked onto the field uh, for the start of the Super Over and did, did uh, Butler say to Morgan, I hope you've got the luck of the Irish with you. And... Rashid said, Allah's on our side, don't worry, or something. Well, Morgan said to Rashid, is Allah with us today, Rash? And he said, yeah, he is. So that's <laughs> good enough for Morgan. And the other piece that I yeah, really enjoyed that I just mentioned, the, the Bob Willis tribute from Paul Allett. Um, just wanted to ask Lawrence, was it, was it an obvious shout to go to Paul Allett as the, as the person to do this piece? And, and why was he your, your pick? It wasn't absolutely obvious. I mean, I asked around with people who knew Bob quite well, who, who was his closest friend in cricket, and Alec came back as the, kept coming back as the name. And I knew, I knew they were close. I, I didn't quite realise how close they were. Um, in fact, we illustrate the, the, the piece with a lovely pic taken by uh, Bob's widow, Lauren, from a holiday in Sussex a few years ago where they're Bob and Paul. They don't know the cameras on them, but they're enjoying some, some red wine together and chewing the cud, you know, probably about who bowled at the wrong end in 1977 or whatever. And, you know, his, it's a love letter, really, from Alec uh, uh, to Willis. Um, he arrived seven minutes before Willis died at his home. And he, he sort of starts by making 
a joke about how he almost was late because the train was running late and Bob would have enjoyed that because he was a train nerd. He knows all the trains and he knew all the trains and bus timetables off by heart. Uh, so Bob would have enjoyed that little irony. And it, and it goes on from there, really, lots of insights into Guy that most of us think of as this sort of cantankerous old grump slagging off the England players on the verdict, but actually had this very soft human side to him. And, 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 and Paul brings that out beautifully. In amongst all the celebratory stuff, there's also a mention from Alec that Willis bowled 939 no balls in Test cricket. I, I knew he had a habit, but I didn't know it was that many. That's an extraordinary figure. It is extraordinary. And he, he includes a stat from Benedict Lamont, the Sky Sports statistician, that because in those days, of course, the no ball didn't count against the bowler. It wasn't an extra run. It was an extra ball, but not an extra run. And he reckons his test average would have been 28, not 25, had the rules been different. So, um, yeah, <laughs> amazing. Maybe he wouldn't have bowled as many no balls if it went against the bowler. No, well, it's funny because he, he'd always used to get angry in the verdict when England bowlers overstepped. So Paul thought this was a great irony. Yeah, 900 no balls is, is not a habit. That's an addiction. Yeah. Um, <laughs> a question that I'm sure you've been asked already. What happens to the 2021 Wizard Almanac if there's no cricket this summer? Well, there will still be a Wisden next year. Um, so I'll start with that. Um, the only question is how thick it will be how much cricket we'll have to report in it. There will be some cricket because there was some cricket in January and February elsewhere around the world. So that all goes in. What happens with the summer, we don't, we don't know really. And there is an outside chance there'll be no cricket at all, I guess. And we'll have to cut our cloth accordingly. Um, we're talking about it already. I mean, we're going to get this book out of the way, all the PR and so on, and then really sit down and try and nail some ideas. We've got, we got, we got a few sort of swilling around. It actually gives us a chance to be inventive. Um, uh, but it's going to be tricky. I mean, I remember thinking after this year's, this, this year's wisdom was going to be a monster because of the, the, the huge amount of stories we had to tell. But next year is going to be the complete opposite and a, in a, a monster in a different way. But it may, be, it may go down as a collector's item. You know, some of the, 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 the wartime wisdoms are quite thin, but they're hard to get now. Uh, and they, they fetch big uh, fees at, at auction. I'm not saying that we'll, we'll underprint next year's wisdom, but it will. I think it will be the the coronavirus wisdom, probably, and people will still want to buy it. They want to break the run. Oh, yeah, I was going to ask, what, uh, what's the precedent for summers with little to no cricket, so the, the wartime wisdoms? Um, there was still some cricket in them. I mean, look at some of the Second World War wisdoms, and there were games played by, like, the British Empire Eleven and the London Counties Eleven and Oxford and Cambridge and the public schools and all this sort of stuff. So there are scorecards in those wisdoms. Um, they're just much thinner. I mean, the, the, the Second World War wisdoms are come in at about 400 pages, roughly. The First World War are even thinner, closer to 250, 300. Um, if you read the preface to the 1941 wisdom, the, the editor, Haddon Whitaker explains that the reason that year's wisdom came out in, in, in August of that year was because the, the, the publishing premises in Mortlake in southwest London had been bombed uh, previous December. So they'd, they'd actually physically lost copy uh, that could never be retrieved uh, in time. So like the, the public's, the report of the school section, um, is like there's just four pages of ads where the, the, the school section should have been because that stuff just went up in flames. So we're not facing that kind of existential threat in the same way, I and mean, it's a different kind of threat, but um, there will be a wisdom and will reflect uh, whatever's taken place. Um, on the school section, um, how, how do you guys choose the, the school's creator of the year? Because the some brilliant previous winners. So whoever picked the 
2011, 12 and 13 one did a wonderful job. I think Johnny, Johnny Bairstow, uh, Josh Butler and James Taylor, maybe not in that order. Yeah, well, we have a, a guy called Douglas Henderson does our school section and he, he effectively chooses it. He's the editor of that section and he, he's in close contact with a lot of schools. Um, he encourages, sorry to say that, that, that there's most of it's public schools, but that's not for want of trying. We, we, try, we try to get more state schools involved. Uh, girls schools as well the reality is we're reflecting what's happening at school level really which is that, that cricket is played in an organized fashion mainly at the, at the public schools so while that's the case the, the the school's cricket of the year tends to be a public school product um and yeah as you say he, Douglas has picked some absolute beauties out of the hat in previous years that's almost the that's almost the acid test isn't it in wisdom is who who he's chosen and he's he's, he's risen to the challenge of pretty well every year so and it's a, it's a nice moment for the for the the boys who who, who get it um they, they get to come to the dinner usually well, no dinner this year obviously but get to come to dinner with their parents they get presented with a leather bound uh edition um or maybe not be leather bound actually but a special a special edition and it presented them by you know mike brilly or mike atherton and it's kind of you know it's a big moment in their careers and we encourage all the schools to have a, a, a cricketer of the year and where they get handed their own wisdom in front of the school and so on so we try and make it a bit of an event and Hopefully one or two of them turn into collectors, you never know. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Lawrence. Thanks, Joe. Uh, It has been the Wizarding Cricket Weekly podcast. If you enjoy the show, tell your friends. And if you're feeling extra kind, please leave us a five-star review in the podcast. Cheers. Podcast Network. This country was built on a distinctly American work ethic, but today work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries, and with that, we sent away good jobs and diminished our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make a variety of high quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more. All made right here in the USA, from growing the cotton and adding the final touches. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs for seamsters, cutters, and factory workers in towns and cities across the United States. And it's about more than an income. Jobs bring pride. Purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20.